Hip hop is a product of black people. It's a product of black song and celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents Hip hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip hop story. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants a rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip hop. 50 years. No one can deny. One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip hop. The AJC's trusted veteran political voices, Greg Bluestein, Patricia Murphy, Tia Mitchell, and Bill Nygut are the essential source for Georgia politics. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution's Politically Georgia. Sign up for the newsletter, download the podcast, subscribe to the AJC. You're listening to Breakdown, an exclusive podcast of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. For more information, including photos, court records, and video, go to AJC.com slash news slash breakdown. Also, please join our Breakdown Facebook group to meet our reporters and ask questions about our story. Previously on Breakdown. I thought maybe if he hadn't seen me, he wouldn't have run away. I don't know. Right. Their pastor's Al Sharpton right now, that's fine. But then that's it. We don't want any more black pastors coming in here. Move in with them, whatever. But, um, yeah, nobody seems to know who this kid is, where he's coming from. But, like, he's always, all the times on the video that Mr. English sent me, sent me one out, it's always been just in there plundering around. He hasn't seen him actually take anything. I said, so, you know, it's a cruel trespass. Yeah, yeah, barely so. Almost all high-profile trials have their moments, big moments. Talk about for years and years to come moments. It could be a surprising opening statement, a stirring closing, the evisceration of a star witness through a skilled attorney's devastating cross-examination, a stunning, unexpected verdict, or when the accused takes the stand in his defense with his life on the line, just like what happened here last week. The man who shot and killed Ahmaud Arbery took the witness stand Wednesday. Travis McMichael not only had his life hanging in the balance, he might as well have had his dad's life, too. Travis. Yes, sir. Do you want to testify? I do. Why? I want to give my side of the story. I want to explain what happened and to, uh, to be able to say what happened from, from the way I see it. Welcome back to Breakdown. I'm Bill Rankin, legal affairs reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, and I'm joined by my AJC colleague, Asia Simone Burns. We'll get into Travis's testimony in a bit. It was, for certain, one of those moments. But what happened in court leading up to it was quite something, too. I guess the best way to begin is by saying, here we go again. The Honorable Reverend Jesse Jackson, who I believe is still here, he is, Your Honor, I think we all know, an icon in the civil rights movement. Not just a witness to it, he the personification of it. And in other circumstances, I think everybody would be happy to have their picture taken, maybe get an autograph. That, of course, is Roddy Bryan's lawyer, Kevin Goff. He made national news last week by asking Judge Timothy Walmsley to ban black pastors from the courtroom. 
First thing Monday morning, Goff is back at it again. Jesse Jackson had just walked into the courtroom and sat down by Ahmad's parents. So Goff asked Wamsley to make Jackson leave the courtroom and watch the trial on a live stream in an overflow room next door. How many pastors does the Arbery family have? Um, we had the Reverend Al Sharpton here earlier, uh, last week. I guess the next question is, which pastor is next? Is Raphael Warnock going to make be the next person appearing this afternoon? Warnock, Georgia's Democratic senator, has been a senior pastor at Atlanta's Ebenezer Baptist Church. We don't know. Your Honor, I would submit, with all respect to the Reverend Jesse Jackson, that this is no different than bringing in police officers or uniformed prison guards in a small town where a young black man has been accused of assaulting a law enforcement officer or corrections officer. Goff also says spectators in a courtroom aren't the same as fans at a basketball game. With all due respect, Your Honor, the seats in the public gallery of a courtroom are not like courtside seats at a Lakers game. There are no First Amendment rights in the public gallery of a courtroom. There is no standing of any particular individual to be present in the public gallery of a courtroom. And there is no reason for these prominent icons in the civil rights movement to be here. You heard that right. Just days after saying black pastors are no longer wanted in court, Goff says there's no reason why civil rights icons need to be there too. Goff also quotes civil rights attorneys as saying the trial of the men accused of murdering Ahmad is a quote-unquote test case for the civil rights movement of 2021. So with all due respect, uh, I would suggest, whether it's intended or not, that inevitably a juror is going to be influenced by their presence in this courtroom. Wamsley has heard enough. Mr. Goff, at this point, I'm not exactly sure what you're doing. I have said over and over and over in this trial that I am attempting to ensure that in this courtroom that the defendants receive a fair trial, and I will continue to do that. I have heard the objection. I have ruled previously on my position with regard to the gallery, and that is unchanged. But Goff isn't finished, or at least he thought he wasn't. And I'm not questioning the court's ruling, but the court, I am. I'm done talking about it, Mr. Goff. I've heard the motion. I understand what your position is. And if it's simply just to point out that an individual is in the gallery, it has been done. Wamsley said he won't single out any person or group of people. If there is a disruption, call it to my attention. Well, that was about to happen but not before the defense scored what could be a big victory. For months, the defense has pushed back on the narrative that Ahmad had gone out for a jog and was chased down and killed by racist vigilantes. We've reported in detail the defense's attempts to get into evidence Ahmad's past problems with the law, including the fact that he was on probation the day he was killed. They contend that could explain why Ahmad ran from the McMichaels when they first confronted him. And Walmsley ruled that out. So Monday morning, lead prosecutor Linda Donikoski says she wants to call on four witnesses. They would testify they had seen Ahmad running and jogging in his neighborhood and beyond. Donikoski essentially tells Wamsley, I'm just checking. Will this open the door? It's logically true that he could be both an avid runner and avid jogger 
In fact, we don't have any reason to dispute that. But that on some occasions, when he engages in the activity we call running or jogging, he's doing it for other motives besides physical, mental health, or whatever other reasons a runner would run. That's Greg's lawyer, Frank Hogue. He's telling Wamsley it will open the door. Wamsley says, well, maybe so, because it raises the why question. Why was Ahmad in Satilla Shores that day? If I'm being asked for a ruling without hearing the evidence, the court is indicating that if this is the type of evidence that comes out, at least in the uh, state's case in chief, that depending on how it's worded, it may end up opening the door to the why question that I have addressed in other orders of this court. But as far as the, case, or the state's case in chief, strikes me as this gets us to the why question. With that, Dunikoski promptly says there will be no testimony from the four women about seeing Ahmad jogging. But she says one of those women will identify a photo of Ahmad from a few years back. She's Carol Flowers, and she lives close to Ahmad's old home. I am approaching you with what has been marked for identification purposes as State's Exhibit 1. If you can look at that and just tell me if you recognize it. Yes. Okay, who's that depicted in the picture? Quiz. Okay, and you say Quez, is that what you knew him as? Yes. Okay, uh, When Prosecutor Larissa Olivier says she has no more questions, Jason Sheffield, one of Travis's lawyers, asks for a recess. Wamsley quickly agrees, sending the jury out of the courtroom. He said he heard Ahmad's mom weeping. There was a little bit of commotion in the back. I wanted it to calm down a little bit before we started with any um, cross-examination. Goff then chimes in again. I would note that the Reverend Jesse Jackson's mask is down below his nose, which I'm not a big believer in masks, but we, again, make that part of the record. And I'm sure the court can see what I'm talking about. Wamsley says he's ready to move forward. But Laura Hogue, one of Greg's lawyers, tells Wamsley she saw Jesse Jackson comfort Ahmad's mom, Wanda Cooper, after she sobbed. And, Your Honor, for purposes of the record... I will have to note that I observed a number of jurors looking back. Um, and <laughs> that's why this is so difficult, Your Honor. We are advocates for our clients, but we are also human beings and parents. We're in a very difficult position now with this jury to have seen and heard and felt that when they go back to deliberate this case, and to think about the decisions that do matter in this case. And Hogue adds, Mr. Goff and I may not agree on a number of things, but uh, the idea that this may not be the best way to handle this sort of case uh, has become now uh, the issue that you asked him to bring to your attention, and that is, has there been any disturbance caused by that? Walmsley says such behavior is expected at a trial like this. It is an emotional trial. That is not unique when it comes to murder trials, um, which is why the court prefaces a lot of murder trials with, I don't want any outbursts from the gallery. So again, to the gallery, I don't want any outbursts from the gallery. Uh, This is not the place for it. Goff then asks for a mistrial. He cites Shepard versus Maxwell, 
the U.S. Supreme Court case we discussed in episode 14. That's the one about Sam Shepard, the Ohio neurosurgeon. He was convicted of killing his wife, but was granted a new trial because of pervasive publicity. Attorney Jason Sheffield then joins Goff's motion for a mistrial. There were several jurors that did look over. Their faces changed, the emotion, the sympathy that they felt. And to see then Mr. Reverend Jackson, whose autographed picture hung in my mother's law office for two decades, um, who is the, the ultimate figure of fairness and justice and equality. Uh, to see that, I don't think it gets any higher in terms of the impression that that makes. And for those reasons, I think that makes this very unique. And that's why we're constrained to join your honor. Thank you. Frank Hogue does too, on behalf of Greg. He says his concerns date back to Wamsley's comments about the state's challenge to the defense's strikes during jury selection. That's when the judge found, on its face, intentional discrimination based on the defense's 11 strikes of 12 black jurors. I think some comments by the court in denying the state's reverse Batson motion, um, I take exception to them and with all due respect. But it's continued the difficulty we've had from the beginning in trying to determine, is this the right venue for this case? We hoped it would be. We wanted it to be. But in light of what's going on now and what has been the history of this case up to now, we are constrained to join the motion for mistrial, but for these slightly different reasons. Not surprisingly, Donikoski opposes the mistrial motion. And Wamsley doesn't grant it. He also tells Goff what he really thinks. So then we start getting into what we have now with individual members uh, or individuals coming into the courtroom. I will say that is directly in response, Mr. Goff, to statements you made, which I find reprehensible. Uh, these, the Colonel Sanders statement you made last week, I would suggest maybe something that has influenced what is going on here. Um, in response to that, and to his credit, Mr. Sheffield made some comments, but did say, you know, come one, come all. The judge closes with this. You need to understand, everybody, that your words in this courtroom have an impact on a lot of what's going on. And so my measured response at this point is to balance all of that out and try to move forward with the trial. I'm not granting a mistrial at this point based on these arguments that are being made because I think... I'm not granting a mistrial at this point, based on the arguments that have been made. When we left you last week, Goff was cross-examining GBI agent Jason Sechrist. It's a continuation worth noting. Like Goff's contention, Ahmad was trying to carjack Roddy's truck. Is it fair to say that the first crime that Mr. Bryan saw that day, personally witnessed, would be Mr. Arbery trying to get in his truck. Unless you discount the fact that somebody was trying to chase Mr. Arbery down while he was legally running, jogging down the road. Here, Goff addresses Sechrist's prior testimony that Roddy failed to call 911. Goff asks, wasn't Roddy somewhat preoccupied? 
preoccupied with trying to chase down Mr. Arbery, hence him coming out of the driveway like he did and following him through the ditch or next to the ditch and then up next to the tree. I would say yes, he was preoccupied. I'm sorry. Again, directing your attention back to the 911 call or the lack thereof. You're not trying to suggest to the jury, notwithstanding all this other stuff you want to talk about, you're not trying to deny that it was impractical for Mr. Bryan to call 911 literally while Mr. Arbery is attempting to get in his truck. At the exact moment that that is happening, probably not. But there were moments before and there were plenty of moments after where he could have made that phone call. And finally, Goff hammers home the point that Roddy wasn't armed when he was chasing down Ahmad. He's clearly implying he took no weapons with him, like Greg and Travis did. Whatever other people in this case may have done, Mr. Bryan came out there armed only with his cell phone. And his vehicle. Okay. All right. Thank you, sir. Thank you, sir. Secret seems to once again devastate Roddy's defense. We also heard from the GBI firearms expert, Brian Leppard, who took Travis's shotgun out of the large evidence box. Jesse Jackson is in the courtroom when Leppard displays the gun. Jackson has his arms around both Wanda Cooper and Marcus Arbery Sr. Ahmad's dad just can't take it. He leaves the courtroom visibly upset and shaking his head. There's also GBI forensic expert Lawrence Kelly. His testimony was not easy to watch. Through Kelly, the state played repeated takes of Roddy's cell phone video of the fatal shooting. Some were enhanced to get a better view. For the first time, we were able to clearly see Ahmad making his final advance at Travis on the driver's side. Then there's Travis raising his shotgun directly at Ahmad, and Ahmad turning right, going around the passenger side of the truck. The GBI took 1,095 still frames of the video, so Donikowski played it quickly, frame by frame on the projector for the jury to see. I'm sure those jurors will be like us. After having seen that video so many times, they'll never forget it. In a GBI interview, Roddy said he regretted Ahmad was killed, and he wished he'd stayed on his porch that day. But with Kelly on the stand, prosecutors played another video. This shows Roddy back on his porch, putting up wood slats, and not looking affected at all. The timestamp on the video is 1.58 p.m. It was less than one hour after Roddy left the scene, having seen Ahmad shot and killed. It's Tuesday, and the state's first witness is Dr. Edmund Donahue. Donahue is now a GBI medical examiner, but years ago, he was the chief medical examiner for Cook County, Illinois. That includes Chicago. In 1982, Donahue was among the first doctors who went public, announcing that Tylenol had been contaminated with cyanide. Seven people died of it. It completely transformed the way consumer product companies packaged their goods with tamper-proof seals. Donahue conducted Ahmad's autopsy. He says Ahmad was 5'10 and weighed 164 pounds. He wore cargo shorts, a white t-shirt, and had two bandanas tied around his neck. And he wore threadbare running shoes. Well, he was uh, uh, muscular uh, and uh, thin. Donikowski asks what Ahmad had on him when he died. No personal items were found. No, no phone, no wallet, no weapons. Nothing? Nothing. 
Donahue makes a concession. In his autopsy, he determined the shotgun blasts were fired from three to four feet away. But later, after seeing the cell phone video and hearing from the GBI firearms expert, he changed his mind. He found the shots were fired from three inches to 20 inches away. That conclusion is more in line with Travis's contention the shots were fired at close range during the struggle over the gun. What comes next has always been the hardest part of a murder trial to watch, and I've sat through many. While some people will leave the courtroom because they can't bear to see it, I've always stayed. It's just part of covering a trial, but it's so awful. Especially this one. Donahue was shown photo after photo of Ahmad on the gurney. There's the gaping shotgun hole in the middle of his chest, and there's another by his armpit. The skin on his wrist was also taken off by a shotgun blast. And there were holes on the other side of his body where their shotgun pellets had passed through. Donikoski asks a question that's on many people's minds. Once Mr. Arbery had been shot in the torso right here, how in the world did he keep moving? Well, this is what is called the flight or fight reaction. And... uh, when you run up, uh, when you run into a situation that is stressful or, uh, or that you're afraid of or is going to cause anxiety, your body will, uh, uh, the amygdala in the brain will correlate a flight or fight response. So you, you, uh, it, it, it stimulates the uh, adrenal glands to se- secrete adrenaline and noradrenaline and cortisol. And this has the effect of raising your heart rate, raising your blood pressure, uh, dilating your pupils, uh, e- even your acuity for hearing improves. It also uh, shuts down the blood supply to the, to the bowel or the gut uh, so that more blood can go to the muscles. And this prepares you either to run or to fight. Donahue says that could have kicked in while Ahmad was being chased before he was killed, when he felt threatened. Doctor, do you have the expertise and knowledge, based on all your years as a medical examiner, forensic pathologist, to address fight or flight responses? Well, it, it, it's the fight or flight response, so after you could no longer flee, you might fight. That testimony was elicited to combat the self-defense claims from Travis's lawyers. So Bob Rubin tries to turn Donahue into a defense witness. You saw in the frame-by-frame that Mr. Arbery had his hand on the shotgun, correct? Yes. You saw in the video and in the frame-by-frame that even with the wound to the wrist, Mr. Arbery was able to swing punches and hit Travis McMichael. Yes. Rubin then gets Donahue to agree to these possibilities. Another alternative explanation, would you agree, is that Mr. Arbery, in fact, grabbed the gun, and when the gun was pulled back and fired, it could have caused the injury. That that could have happened, yes. Okay. My question is, is it consistent with the wrist wound for Mr. Arbery to have grabbed the gun and the gun been pulled back by Mr. McMichael when it was fired? That's possible. Ruben addresses Donahue's testimony about being in a fight-or-flight mode because they fight when they can no longer flee. You didn't see any evidence that Mr. Arbery could no longer flee, right? Well, uh, no, I I didn't. Okay. You examined his body. He was a muscular 25-year-old man, right? 
Yes. But to be in good shape from the autopsy, physical shape. Yes. Okay. And so there was nothing physically preventing him from continuing to run, right? No. Lastly, Ruben gives Donahue an opening. You have no idea what he was afraid of at that point in time, correct? Well, I, there's a man holding a shotgun out there. Right. So could have been afraid of being shot. And there was a man following him in a pickup truck. The state calls three more GBI agents, including the lead agent on the case, Richard Dial. He is the state's 23rd witness. We expected to hear some strong testimony from Dial because of his performance last year at the preliminary hearing. But that didn't really happen. Dial just goes through photos of the scene and the GBI drone videos of the route taken by Ahmad and those pursuing him. And Dial didn't really tell us much more than we already knew. That's true. I was surprised. And this is borne out when Donikowski passes him as a witness. Both Travis's and Greg's lawyers say they have no questions for Dial. No questions for the lead agent on the case. Goff has some questions. But Dial hits back just as successfully as Agent Secrets did on Monday. When Goff is finished, Donikowski says this. Your Honor, at this time, the state rests. That was an anticlimactic ending. No question about it. It was after 4 p.m. when the state rests, so we assumed Wamsley was going to send the jury home. Nope, didn't happen. It was golf time again. That morning, he'd filed a motion asking Wamsley to make a record of all people in the courtroom gallery. I've never heard of that before. Once again, Goff says the overflow room next door should suffice for any more pastors. If the Arbery family has a minister or ministers that are their pastors or members of their church or otherwise, that's one thing. But just trotting in pastor after pastor after pastor, including pastors from other parts of the country that they have no apparent ministerial relationship with uh, is inappropriate here. Uh, And there's no reason, given the high-profile nature of this case and all the other unusual activities, protests, marches, and other things, there's just no reason to take that risk. Goff asks Wamsley to be more proactive, to act before things get more disruptive and intimidating. Uh, They have a, a huge rally planned for Thursday, hundreds of pastors from across the country. Uh, are going to be here for that. Um, That is not something that is in response to anything that took place in this courthouse or during this trial. Um, excuse me? Did he really just say that? Not in response to anything that took place in court? Not in response to what he actually said? Please. Although this court has uh, labeled me reprehensible or Walmsley cuts him off but he's not speaking into the microphone the judge says he didn't call Goff reprehensible and only said that about the words Goff had said let's be clear about that it was not specific I was talking about some comments that were made so I, I checked to make sure because I want to make sure that I did not direct that at you personally those comments were the reason I felt that at that time I needed to address where the court was on things. So I just want to make sure that's clear. I will say, judging by my phone being blown up in my emails, that 
the uh, certainly the general public has interpreted the uh, words of the court in, in a different manner than, than perhaps you and I did. The court is not an appropriate place for personal attacks. You can comment on what's happening in the court, but do not direct it anyone personally. So that's why I wanted to make sure it was clear that was not a personal attack on the, the court's behalf. Thank you, Your Honor. From my perspective, though, I, I suspect I'll be getting, uh, continuing to get love letters and, and messages for days to come. But be that as it may, Your Honor, we are asking the court to take stronger steps to ensure the right of the defendants to a fair trial in advance of the events planned for this Thursday. Wamsley says he's already ruled two times on this request and rejected them. Those rulings stand. And Wamsley already said Goff's own words would create the spectacle outside the courthouse that was to come. Did they ever, as you'll see. But on Wednesday, Goff gives his opening statement. Remember, he chose to wait until the state rested its case. Right off the bat, Goff puts the onus on Ahmad for not asking for help. This is, to, to me, uh, this is important. The evidence does not show that Mr. Arbery has reached out to Mr. Bryan. You know, there's been a lot of talk about driveway decisions. There's been a lot of talk about assuming the worst in people. Goff notes Roddy was on his front porch listening to music, oblivious to what was going on around him. Until he sees Ahmad run by, followed by men in a pickup truck, Travis and Greg. Mr. Bryan has the opportunity before Mr. Arbery has the opportunity before Mr. Bryan even understands what's going on to, to say and speak out, help, call 911. There's crazy people after me. That doesn't happen. Mr. Bryan hasn't assumed, the evidence would suggest that Mr. Bryan hasn't assumed the worst about anyone. That Mr. Arbery, for whatever reason, has assumed the worst about Mr. Bryan. Because if he's in distress, if he, in fact, is feeling threatened, he has the opportunity to reach out to Mr. Bryan. Goff says the evidence shows Roddy never tried to run down Ahmad with his truck. He says when he was interviewed later by police, he had nothing to hide. If Roddy really wanted to cover up his involvement, he could have thrown his cell phone in the march. Didn't happen. At another point, there's a question... Should, he, should Roddy have been chasing him? The answer is, I don't know. We'll discuss some of these issues more in closing. But the evidence would again suggest that this is not somebody who's trying to minimize his conduct. Mr. Bryan says on February 23rd that he acted instinctively. The evidence shows that he was candid, that he can't articulate exactly why he did what he did, other than his general awareness of what was going on in the neighborhood. Goff says Roddy is the one who told police he had the cell phone video, and he cooperated throughout the investigation. He answered all their questions. He never minimized his involvement. And for the first time, we hear Goff get emotional. It's Mr. Bryan who invites the police in his truck. Officer Minshew sits with him in his truck and looks at the evidence for the first time. He's invited people to his house. He's given them his truck over and over again, because he's trying to hide something. Now, on February 23rd, Roddy Bryan put his fate in the hands of the Glen County Police Department. He put his trust in law enforcement officers that he did not even know. 
He put his trust in our government to do the right thing. That's what the evidence shows. And now he finds himself here before you <clears throat> and he's placing his fate in your hands. And if the evidence is as we expect it to be, we're gonna come back and ask you to return a verdict of not guilty. This is Breakdown. Then it's time for the defense to present its case. We knew Travis McMichael was going to testify. Attorney Bob Rubin all but telegraphed it would happen in his opening statement. So the only question was, when would it happen? We didn't have to wait. All right. Uh, on behalf of uh, the defendant, Travis McMichael, Mr. Shepard. Yes, defense calls Travis McMichael. Yeah. Travis is the defense's yeah, first yeah. witness. Yeah. Mr. Right. Sir, tell the truth, whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Yes, sir. Go ahead and see. Travis says he moved into his parents' house in Satilla Shores in 2018. He says crime became more of a problem the following year. He cites reports of car break-ins and suspicious people. He started noticing and hearing people starting to put cameras in their, in their houses. Um, it was, I can't remember all the people, but you go down the road, you, know, you drive down from Satilla Drive to my house, you see cameras on every, you know, just starting to come up on every house. And also, people were, weren't going out as much in the evening times either. They were just concerned about it, so they wouldn't come out as much anymore. Sheffield then gets Travis to talk about his career in the U.S. Coast Guard as a petty officer. He served from 2007 to 2016. Travis had arrest powers as an interdiction officer on U.S. territorial waters. And Sheffield makes certain to ask Travis about this because this goes to the heart of the legal threshold for making a citizen's arrest. Did you learn terms like probable cause or reasonable suspicion? We did. Okay. And what was your training about probable cause? With Sheffield writing every word on a large flip chart, Travis says probable cause is a level of suspicion by a reasonable and prudent person given the overall circumstances to believe a crime has been committed. And Sheffield walks Travis through what he calls the use of force continuum. Travis starts with saying how officers initially use verbal commands and he works his way up to the use of deadly force. And Sheffield asked him about his training to make sure to keep his weapon secure. What is the concern about not retaining your weapon? That it would, one, that you would not be able to protect yourself in a daily force situation, and also that somebody taking a weapon from you would use it on you or others. Sheffield asks, if you raise a gun at someone, can that de-escalate a situation? From what I've learned in my training, that usually that calls people to back off or to realize what's happening. Sheffield turns to February 11th, 2020, 12 days before Travis shot and killed Ahmad. That's when Travis saw the man later identified as Ahmad across the street. He is staying in the shadows, lack of better terms, lurking, was creeping, um, wasn't in a run, it was just, just creeping through the shadows. Travis backs up his car. He turns his headlights on the man. Again, obviously, he's aware that I am aware that he's there. Headlights on him. 
Travis says he got out of his car to ask the man what he was doing there, maybe to run him off. As he comes out of the shadows from behind that portal, he comes directly to me. I'm out of the door and he comes out and he pulls up his shirt and goes to reach in his pocket or waistband area. It freaked me out. So once I realized what's going on, that he is doing this, and I'm under assumption that he's armed, I jump back in the vehicle. He turns around and runs into the house. I didn't have a gun on me. He's gone. I was getting the hell out of there. I just wanted to leave, make sure, because I don't know where he's at at this point. I go to jump in the, the car to take off to the house. I forget the, the parking brakes on. I stall the truck of the vehicle out, crank the car back up, and get to turn and go back to my home. Travis says when he told his dad what he'd seen, Greg leaves the house and heads to the English property. Travis then calls 911. We've played that call several times before in prior episodes. You can hear Travis breathing hard and telling the 911 operator what's going on. At one point, she asks, Okay. Are you okay? Yeah, yeah. When I, it just startled me. Um, when I turned around, when I turned around and saw him and backed up, he reached into his pocket and ran into the house. So I don't know if he's armed or not, um, but he looked like he was acting like he was. So, um, you know, be mindful of that. When Travis gets there, he sees his dad talking to neighbor Diego Perez. Then Officer Robert Rash arrives. He shows them videos that Larry English had sent them, what was just captured inside the house. Was there anything about the video that made you feel anything whatsoever? Yeah, so having that experience, what I just said, that, you know, with him drawing the, or acting like he's drawing the weapon and then running into the house, and then seeing the video that he's walking walking around so nonchalant in that, that house kind of it startled me a little bit that having that just happen, just catching him creeping through that front yard and obviously trying to uh, avoid detection and then doing what he did there and then going into that house and then walking around in there like it's no big deal was was alarming. Alarming why? Because I wouldn't think anyone acting normal would do that. Travis says he was told that night for the first time that the guy he saw was the same guy who'd been captured on video inside the house several times before. Sheffield finally turns to the fateful day of February 23rd, 2020. Travis says he was inside his house trying to get his three-year-old son Everett to take a nap. Then Greg barges in in a frenzy. All right, what did you notice about your dad when he came in? Uh, he came through the kitchen the back kitchen door that leads to the garage. And uh, he was in a almost frantic state. Uh, he came in, like I said earlier, he's had hip surgery, he's had a stroke. So him going at a fast pace is kind of a rare thing. And he was moving pretty quick okay. uh, coming in. Did he say anything to you? Yeah, he said, uh, he said, Travis, the guy that has been breaking in down the road just ran by the house. Something's happened. Travis says he immediately assumed it was the same guy he had seen 12 days earlier. Here he is explaining why he got his shotgun. So I went to my room, which is the door is to the living living room that I was in. And the first firearm that I had that was easily accessible because I had my son that week. Uh, My pistols were in the safe and everything. 
was my shotgun. I just cleaned it or I had it out for something. So I grabbed the shotgun. Travis says he walks to the front of his driveway and looks down the street. He says he sees a neighbor, Matt Albenze. So I came out when I saw Matt, I was right at the truck. So when I saw Matt down the road, he saw me and he pointed down the road, pointed down towards Burford and Stilla and Holmes towards me. I thought it was reasonable that, okay, there's something to this. This guy may have just ran by. Matt may have just seen him, either caught him breaking in, stealing something, or uh, the guy that owns the property that stays in the, in the camper might be on property and just startled him or, God forbid, maybe there may have been an altercation or something happened. Travis says his father comes out and tells him to get in the truck and to go in the direction Ahmad was running. Andy says he put his shotgun between the two bucket seats and his father sat atop his son's car seat. Sheffield asks, why did you start going after Ahmad? I'm trying to find out what's going on. I'm trying to analyze the whole situation, but looking for whoever it was that ran by. I hadn't made any eye contact at the time. Travis then addresses whether his dad had called 911. I asked my father, I said, uh, have you, did you call the cops or the cops on the way? I'm not sure exactly what I said. I think I said, did you call the cops? Okay. Um, And so at this moment, you're asking him if he called the police? Yes. All right. And? He said, I I know that he didn't, uh, he didn't catch what I was saying. I don't think he was paying attention completely. He said, yes, yes. I assume that he has called the police. Travis says when they turn onto Burford Road, he sees the man. Travis says he's running, taking long strides. He's athletic, in great shape. He soon pulls up alongside him and gets a good look at him. He sees the same guy he saw on February 11th, Ahmad. That moment, I recognize it is him. It is the same guy that I saw from the 11th. I uh, asked him, said, hey, what are you doing? What's going on? All right, stop. Are you still driving when you say this to him? Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm coasting. I'm, I'm staying with him. I'm staying. He's right there at my door. Okay. Have you angled in front of him to block him? I'm parallel with him. Okay. You say, hey, go ahead. What are you yeah, doing? What's going on? What, what are you doing? You know, what's the tone of your voice when you just say Just like that. Hey, what's going on? I'm trying to stay. I'm trying to, like I said earlier, I'm using leaps. I'm trying to de-escalate. I know that this can be, you know, this... This could go any way, but I'm trying to find out what's going on. Travis says he also notices something about Ahmad's demeanor. At this point, he is still running, but I notice um, that he's, he looks very angry. He's um, Describe that. What do you mean? Mad. Um, it, was, it wasn't what I expected um, from just coming up and talking to him. Uh, it, was, uh, it was clenched teeth, um, closed brow. He was, he was mad, which made me think that Right, something, something's happened. Travis says Ahmad didn't say a word. Instead, Ahmad turns around and runs the other way. So Travis turns the pickup truck around and resumes his chase. Travis says he drives up next to Ahmad once again. So after I get up to him again, I say, hey, I, I just want to talk to you. I want to know what's going on. He finally stops. Okay, great. Um, I want to talk to you. I want to know what's going on. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay, go ahead. So, he finally, we finally stop, ask what's going on. He never says anything to me. He's still looking at me angry. I'm thinking, man, man this guy's, yeah, this could be volatile. You know, let's, let's be kind of watch him here. 
ask him again, hey, what is what happened down the road? Why are people pointing down the road? You know, where are you running from? He didn't say anything, and he's still kind of in the same spot he is. He's not, um, he's not squaring up or anything like that. He's just standing there. And then I said, hey, the police are on the way. As soon as I said the police, he turned and ran straight back down Burford towards Holmes, Satilla. Here, Travis seems to be making his best case as to why he and his dad were justified in chasing Ahmad. As soon as I said the police were on the way, he turned and, and sprinted down Burford. Did that mean anything to you, the way he acted when you said that? It did. Like what? Well, why would you, if there's, if nothing happened down there, it, totality of circumstance, if nothing happened down there, if the neighbor wasn't pointing down the road, if I haven't seen him on video and the possibility that he is down there again, all that might be in play. If, if not, that's fine. If I say the police are on the way and you take off and run, getting away, then it's all right. There is, he, he may have been caught okay. in that house again and, and uh, there, He's up to up to uh, probably been caught on that on that property and, and is trying to evade, trying to avoid from being uh, stopped by police. Travis testifies he never pulled out his shotgun and never told Ahmad he was going to shoot him. A short while later, Greg gets out of the toddler seat and gets into the back of the pickup. At that point, Travis says he looks up and sees a black Chevy pickup truck. Of course, that's the one being driven by Roddy. Travis says he didn't know where the truck came from. So I, was, I didn't know if it, maybe if this guy was picking Mr. Arbery up or if he was involved with what hap- whatever happened down there and he was trying to stop him or I was scared that I thought it was Mr. Arbery. I was, you know, one of my thoughts was I might hear a gunshot here. You know, so what's happening? I was kind of just watching, you know, just like what's happening on, on alert. Okay. And uh, I watched that happen, and then from where I was, what it looked like is Arby got in front of the vehicle and continued down the road. Travis says Greg tells him to continue after Ahmad, but Travis instead turns down Holmes Road toward its intersection with Satilla Drive, and he explains why. I'm going to go to Holmes because I know that he is not behind me. I know that he's not where I can see down Holmes, and I know where he's been. I can kind of figure out where he's at and then the police are going to be here at any second if i encounter them before they encounter what's going on i could tell them where i saw him last maybe we could finally have this guy called but as he's driving travis looks up and sees ahmad again then he sees roddy's black chevy silverado and he says ahmad is closing in on it i don't know why he was okay it, i mean it was it was my thought was why is he attacking a truck why is he hitting a truck Travis says Ahmad and Roddy's pickup truck come to within about 10 feet from him. Then Ahmad runs past, down Holmes Road, around a dogleg. The Chevy goes out of sight, too. Travis moves his truck to its final resting place near the intersection of Satilla Drive. Get out of the vehicle, analyze and see what the situation is, seeing if Dad, what's going on with Dad. Uh, at that point, I said, where are the cops? Where are the police? Dad said, I, I don't have a phone. Well, all right. The cops haven't been called. Let me grab my phone. I go to reach for my phone, and I look back. I don't know if Dad yelled or or if I was looking down the road, but I look down the road, and I see Mr. Arby running back towards me. How far does he get towards you 
before you start saying stop. And this straight away, so it was probably 30 yards. Okay. And you, again, tell us what you do, show us how you do it. Yeah, so I yell at him to stop. You know, stop right there, stop right there. He's continuing, we were in eye contact. Um, he's getting closer and I'm thinking, he's, he's not looking left, he's not looking right. It's not a, and the way he's running, it's not a full sprint, it's not a jog. The best way to describe it is like, uh, you got a running back, you're about to throw a pass and they're, they're staged up, you know, they're, they're kind of on their toes, ready to bolt. Mm -hmm. He was at that moment, he was, at, he was in that stance. Travis says he reaches into his truck for his shotgun. And when Ahmad sees this, he turns around and runs back down Holmes Road. Travis then grabs his cell phone, dials 911, and hands his phone to his dad. As he's running towards you at this moment, what are you thinking? That I'm pretty sure that he is going to attack. What makes you think that? Uh, the totality of this circumstance, what I just witnessed with the truck, what happened on the 11th, the way that he acted on the 11th, and then his eye contact on me, and not looking left or right, or pivoting and avoiding where I'm standing, where I'm at on this truck. Travis says there are openings and yards that Ahmad can take to get away, but he says Ahmad keeps coming at him. He says he realizes if Ahmad makes a burst toward him, he won't have time to raise his shotgun. So he raises it and points it directly at Ahmad. When you raise it at that moment, for the reasons that you did, does it have the effect that you hoped it would? Yes, it did. Which was what? It did. Uh, he angled, he no longer went my direction. Okay. As soon as I drew, as soon as I drew the weapon on him, you can see in the video that he darts to the left and darts to the right and then commits to the right. When he does that, as soon as he darts, I put the weapon back down and move away from my vehicle. I make a distance. I'm thinking he's going to go across this yard. Well, what if he did? I'll just let him keep on going. Let him, let him run on by. Travis says when Ahmad ran around the passenger side, he's worried about his dad's safety. He's also worried about Ahmad possibly jumping in the truck, which is still running. So Travis goes around the front of the truck to see what's going on. He says he assumed if Ahmad saw him with a shotgun, he'd continue to run away. I get to the front of the truck, and by the time I get to the front of the truck, he is at the front corner panel on the right-hand side, and he turns and is on me. It's on me. I mean, a flash. I mean, immediately on me. On you doing what? He grabs the shotgun, and I believe I was struck on that, that, that first instance that, that we made contact. Um, what were you thinking at that moment? I was thinking of my son. It sounds weird, but that was the first, this, this, this first thing that hit me. What did you do? I shot why? He, he had my gun. He, he struck me. It was obvious that he was, uh, it was obvious that, that he was attacking me, that if he would have got the shotgun from me, then it was a, this is a life or death situation. And I'm going to have to stop him from doing this. So I shot. 
Travis says, as the video shows, Ahmad did not stop after the first shot. Now Travis turns to his weapon retention training from the Coast Guard. It's the same lesson he taught other officers. So much so, he says, it's like muscle memory to him. You push out, then pull down to try and gain control. Except this time, it didn't work. I didn't know where I was at, but I knew that he was on me. I knew that I was, I was losing this. I knew that if I was getting tripped, if I would have tripped, or if he would have got a lucky strike on my head, or if I would have lost that grip on that shotgun, that, I've, um, that I would have been shot or I would have been, I'd have been in serious trouble at that point. I knew that, he was, uh, I knew that he was overpowering me, but I didn't know which direction or, um, or what mechanics he was doing to, to overpower me. Travis says he thought he fired two shotgun blasts. But after talking to investigators, he realized he had fired three times. And then the second shot, I shot again because I was still, I was still fighting. I was still, he was all over me. He was still all over that shotgun um, and he was not relenting. So I had, I shot again to stop him. That that third shot, which I thought was second, that, that final shot, he disengaged. And at that point, he let go. He turned and continued to run down um, down Satilla. And at that point, I was in shock. I, 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 I turned around. I don't know where I was going. My dad came out, and he was yelling that he's got his hand under him. I turned around. We got over there and uh, pulled his hand out from under him and realized that he was deceased. And I looked up and the police were right there. Um, I stood up, realized that, you know, that I got a gun here and, and uh, that he is, that he's passed away. The police were on scene. So I walked over to the side and put my shotgun down. After that, it was, it was a blur. Travis grabs a tissue and wipes tears out of his eyes. After a few more questions, Sheffield passes his witness to Donikoski. But before Donikoski begins her cross, Sheffield asks Wamsley to bar her from asking Travis if he said effing inward as he stood over the dying Ahmad. That's what Roddy told GBI agents he heard while talking to them in his fourth interview. Travis's lawyers strongly deny their client said that. If you remember, in episode five, we called it the elephant in the room. And because Roddy told that to a GBI agent, the agent would not be able to testify about it because it's hearsay. We told you the only way it could come in is if Roddy testified. Then he could be asked about it on cross-examination. Here, Sheffield is telling Walmsley that Donikoski cannot ask Travis if he said effing N-word because she doesn't have a good faith basis to do so. And Sheffield said the defense didn't open the door to such testimony. We don't believe it's proper to ask that question at this point, uh, given it's not, there is no admissible evidence of that epithet. Sheffield also says he understands Roddy is not going to take the stand. So because of that, there's no basis for the statement. Donikoski says that she's done legal research overnight and admits she can't find a court ruling on point. 
She does offer a couple of opinions to Wamsley, but they don't appear to be persuasive. We believe we have a good faith basis to ask Travis McMichael, did you in fact say that? Based on the knowledge that we have, that we have a co-defendant who's seated here. Goff says, unless he's forced to, Roddy has no intention of testifying. If the state wants the testimony of Mr. Bryant, they can dismiss the indictment in this case against him with prejudice as to all counts. Then there'd be something to talk about. We, we have no intent, Mr. Bryant, as we stand here, subject to reconsider, has no intention of this time testifying. That wasn't going to happen. So Walmsley finally says this. With that as a starting point, I'll go ahead and take a look at the cases and see where they lead me. Um, but I'm not going to, particularly with this issue and what we're talking about here, I'm not just going to give everybody an answer based on cases that were just cited to the court. Uh, but there will be an answer before Mr. Mimpnarko steps down. Donikoski starts out by asking Travis about a post he made on the Neighborhood Facebook page after a woman said she'd left her car unlocked and someone went in there and stole her purse. Do you remember that you posted in response to that? I do not. Do you remember that your post was playing with fire on this side of the neighborhood? Uh, yes. Donikoski asked Travis if he knew there was only one burglary call in all of 2019 in Satilla Shores, and it was a false alarm. Travis replied he'd heard there'd been several burglaries. He heard that from his mom and other neighbors. So you're telling this jury that what you heard was rumor from other people? It was what I was told from my mother and seeing on Facebook and from the neighbors. This is a theme of Donikoski's cross getting Travis to acknowledge that he had no hard evidence about certain crimes. So it's fair to say you had incomplete information about who was committing the crimes in Satilla Shores? Yes. Donikoski also asks about the English house under construction, and she gets this concession. So several different people in your mind had been going into that open, unsecured construction site during this period of time. That's correct. So anyone of these people could be the people who had taken the items off of their English boat. Absolutely. Danikoski points out discrepancies in what Travis told the cops in his interview at headquarters compared to what he had just said on the witness stand. Like when he told police he told his dad to call 911 during the pursuit, after he recognized Ahmad. Travis explains the contradiction this way. I, I said that to, to Officer Nohealy, but at, at the time... I was still I was still under the influence of what happened. This was only two hours after the most traumatic experience of my life. Uh, I'm trying to give him as much information as I can. So from reading these transcripts, I've realized that I was scatterbrained everywhere. When I said pull paragraphs so pull so pull up to him and say hey you know what's going on he's running he won't stop i said that's him stop right there stop right call the cops you know there he is starts acting funny takes off running i'm all over the place i'm i'm trying to i'm trying to explain what's going on but yes i said it but i don't think i i I don't think i was intending to say there he is hey you call the cops it was it was the same time of the situation kind of muddled together. Donikoski asks Travis if he thought Ahmad was a threat when he was running through the neighborhood. 
when he and his dad were chasing him. And at this point in time, when you first see him on Burford, he's not reaching into his pockets. Run, no mail, not running, no mail. And he never yelled at you guys? No mail. Never threatened you at all? No mail. Never ever. brandished any weapons? Sorry, you're trying to finish his answer. Yeah, he did not threaten me verbally, no mail. All right. Didn't brandish any weapons? Uh, no mail. Didn't pull out any guns? No mail. Didn't pull out any knife? No mail. Never reached for anything, did he? Uh, no. He just ran. Yes, he was just running. Donikowski continues to point out discrepancies in his testimony versus what he earlier told police. Travis says that's because he was stressed out and, and nervous and scared. So what were you nervous about while giving this statement? I just killed a man. I had blood on me still. I was the most traumatic event of my life. I was, I was scared to death. I mean, it was, it was the most traumatic event of my life. I don't know anybody who wouldn't be scared or stressed or terrified or anything. I mean, it was, it was horrible. I'm talking about giving your statement two hours later at a police station. You were nervous because you thought you were going to jail, right? No. I was, I gave him a statement. I mean, it, it you, somebody, you don't think you're going to jail. That's what you're saying. Donikowski then directly challenges Travis's account of what happened. So you didn't shoot him because he grabbed the barrel of your shotgun. You shot him because he came around that corner and you were right there and you just pulled that trigger immediately. No, I was struck and he was, we were face to face and being struck and that's when I, when I shot. She says, let's talk about some of the things you chose not to do. You could have made sure that you and your dad called the police from your house at 230 Satilla Drive before you ever got in that pickup truck, correct? I could have, but I was under the impression that he has called the police when we left there. And you could have just continued to drive behind Mr. Arbery and not even speak to him or confront him at all. Isn't that true? I could have, yes. Mm -hmm. And you could have stayed in your truck over on Holmes Drive, right? Could have, yes. And you could have stayed in your truck until he ran by and then driven away to go ahead and follow him, right? I could have, yes. To counter arguments made by the defense, Dunikoski asks, You never told the police that you said to Mr. Arbery, you're under arrest, correct? I did not. Okay. In fact, you never did tell Mr. Arbery, you're under arrest for the crime of fill in the blank. I didn't have time. I was still trying to get him to stop. Donikoski concludes by saying she wants to talk about Travis's attitudes toward vigilanteism. She refers to posts he made on the neighborhood Facebook page. Donikoski brings up a neighbor's post in July 2019 about a possible crime being committed. Your first response was, arm up. Do you remember that? Uh, would you like to see it? Yes, please. Okay. I would. Said to arm up. Yes, ma'am, does. During another chat on Facebook, Travis tells a neighbor worried about break-ins, I hope you catch the vermin. She said, we've had a lot of trouble with thieves. It just worries me because my daddy is slap old crazy, LOL. He's old as dirt and doesn't care about jail. And you responded, that's what this world needs more of. My old man is the same way. I did say that, yes, ma'am. And then the next line is, you said, 
Hell, I'm getting that way. I did say that. Travis steps down from the stand late Thursday morning, and Wamsley never made his decision on the use of the effing N-word, so it never came up and will not be a part of the trial. As for Travis, it seems he did about as well as his attorneys could have hoped for. He never wavered during Dunikowski's cross and pushed back against her assertions when he felt he needed to. The overriding question will be whether he convinced at least some jurors that he and his father were justified in making a citizen's arrest of Ahmad. If there was no justification, Travis cannot defend his actions after the chase began. Travis can't claim self-defense. It's not an option. If there was no justification for a citizen's arrest, then Travis, Greg, and Roddy were the initial aggressors. Under Georgia law, an initial aggressor cannot raise the claim of self-defense. Not long after Travis returns to the defense table, a truly amazing assembly of people gathered just outside the Glynn County Courthouse. And Goff has himself to thank for this. Because after he objected the prior week to the Reverend Al Sharpton sitting in the courtroom and asked for a ban on any more black pastors, Sharpton called for more than 100 black pastors to join him outside the courthouse. His call was certainly answered. Yes, that's exactly what happened. More than 750 people were on the courthouse lawn. It's an overwhelming sea of commotion. Many are wearing suits. Scores are in clerical collars. Some are in yarmulkes. But while standing immersed in the crowd, it's obvious that most of them are black members of the clergy. We didn't come here to put a burden on them. But we come to pray. That's the Reverend Al Sharpton. He stood at a podium and addressed the crowd. And I want y'all to tell the press all over the world that you've never seen a gathering of black pastors like this. But when he called himself insulting one, he insulted all of us. He attacked the church. He didn't just say enough of the of, of civil rights leaders, he said no more black pastors. He called them black pastors. He didn't even say he cared about white pastors. Well, if you thought one was enough, look at what you brought now. John Perry, the senior pastor of Mount Sinai Missionary Baptist Church in Brunswick, also said a few words. On last week, we heard the remarks of the attorney. Mm -hmm. I don't even want to call his name because he doesn't deserve that platform. I'll note, Goff had previously endorsed Perry during his run for mayor this year. We heard the attorney say that there should be no black pastors allowed in the courtroom. But it's important that we say to the world that we understand who we are. We're clear about our identity. And so as we stand here, we stand as a response to his statement. And our stance is, first of all, a stance of public unity for the Aubrey family, letting them know that we're standing with you. But secondly, it's a stance of clarity, that we know who we are as the order of divine priesthood, 
and that no one has the right to redefine our role and our responsibility as men and women of God. And so as we stand on the day, we stand saying that over and over again we will show up because he showed up for us. And because he showed up for us, we have been anointed to show up for others. And when we show up, we are the light of the world. God bless you all. There are about a half dozen other people that spoke too. Attorney Ben Crump, who represents Maud's father, Marcus Arbery, Lee Merritt, Roland Martin, even Martin Luther King III, the son of the civil rights icon, Martin Luther King Jr. I come on behalf, in a sense, of my father and mother, my grandfather and grandmother, my great-grandfather and great-grandmother, because all three of those gentlemen gentlemen were preachers. And while I may not be a preacher, there is a ministry that exists. And part of that ministry is whenever you see injustice, you must stand up. He said one of my favorite quotes of Dr. King's, a threat to justice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. What happened outside the courthouse as testimony was being given on the stand was a sight to behold. There was even St. Louis Cardinals star pitcher Adam Wainwright cooking up shrimp and serving it to the crowd. He's a graduate of Glen County High. As Judge Walmsley suggested to the court, Goff essentially brought this upon himself. The judge was prophetic when he told the lawyers, words matter, what you say in court matters. Before heading back into the courthouse to observe the rest of the day's proceedings, Ahmad's family thanked the crowd for standing with them. I chuckle to myself a lot when I talk out in public because... Um, Here's Ahmad's sister, Jasmine Arbery. Ahmad laughed at me when I'm talking out in public because I was so shy and he constantly put me on the spot. I just like to thank everyone for the support and um, outpouring of prayers and love. And his mother, Wanda Cooper. I just want to say thank you. My heart is full of just joy in the midst of this broken heart. Just thank you guys, and I love you all. What a day, right? It certainly was. Okay, back to the courtroom. And what happens after the defense calls its next witness causes another stir. Her name is Lindy Kofer, and she's a resident of Satilla Shores. She's talking about crime in the neighborhood when prosecutor Larissa Olivier asks this question. Do you believe that someone stealing is deserving of death penalty, Mr. Kofer? Relevance, Your Honor. I always drop the question, Judge. You've got a motion to make at this point. Laura Hogue, who represents Greg, says she has a motion. I would ask the court on behalf of Greg McMichael that the jury be brought back in after lunch, that in front of the jury, Miss Olivier be admonished or asking a question that she knew or ought, certainly ought to have known was impermissible, as was clear by the fact that she did made no attempt to defend it. And number two, that the jury be instructed to disregard that uh, question and whatever feelings it might have made them have. 
it's inappropriate, it's incendiary, it's prejudicial, it's improper, and we ask that she be sanctioned in front of the jury for having done that in such a, in any case, but in such a serious case. Walmsley asks Olivier to explain herself. Yes, Your Honor. Um, I believe it was an appropriate question for Ms. Kofer, um, given that I had her on cross-examination. I thought it was an appropriate question. Walmsley decides to take a lunch break. When he returns, he addresses Olivier. The court does find that the question that was presented was inflammatory and irrelevant uh, and completely unnecessary, particularly given the witness that was on the stand. It has potentially injected into this case issues not appropriate for the jury and which were in fact discussed and brought up pre-trial. Counsel should have either known or should have known that this was a um, question that should not have been asked. And therefore, counsel is admonished by the court and is instructed not to repeat such actions subject to the contempt powers of the court. When the jury returns, Walmsley tells them Olivier asked an improper question and they should completely disregard it. Travis's lawyers continue calling Satilla Shore's residents to buttress their contention this was a neighborhood on edge. One witness called is Brooke Perez. She's married to Diego Perez and they live just a few doors down from Larry English's home under construction. Bob Rubin asks her about the crime in the neighborhood. There were several um, car break-ins. Um, I know, like backpacks were rummaged through, and some kids' backpacks were found in the, you know, different yards and stuff. Um, There's just a lot of suspicious activity. A lot of people coming and going um, into Mr. English's house, and it's just an uneasy feeling to not know, you know, who it is and. The cops are being called, and they still don't know, you know who it is. It's just not a good feeling. After Travis's lawyers call seven witnesses, there's a break. When we return, golf once again causes everyone's eyes to widen and heads to turn. I would note for the record that my understanding is the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. has graced us with his presence in the public gallery this afternoon. No, there was no resurrection. Frank Hogue quickly corrects him. The third. The third. I'm sorry. The third. Martin Luther King III. Martin Luther King III, yeah. King had been in the courtroom earlier, but he wasn't at the time Goff made his faux pas, thank goodness. And upon that, Walmsley brings the jury back into the courtroom. All right. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, we are ready to proceed with the case uh, from Travis McMichael. Your Honor, on behalf of Travis McMichael, we rest. Thank you, Your Honor. Greg McMichael. Your Honor, on behalf of Greg McMichael, we rest. On behalf of Mr. Bryan. Your Honor, on behalf of, of Mr. Bryan, uh, we, with that understanding, we rest. So, the case is closed. All the evidence and testimony have been presented. Before sending the jury home, Walmsley tells them to take Friday off and return on Monday. On Friday, the judge and the lawyers will hold what's called a charge conference. 
That determines what law Walmsley will read to the jury, what law will govern their deliberations. The lawyers in Walmsley reconvene on Friday, and Goff is at it once again. He asks for another mistrial. We've lost count how many times he's done that. But what follows is quite something. First off, Goff describes in great detail the scene on Thursday outside the courthouse. Dunikowski has this take on Goff's latest motion. Your Honor, Mr. Goff is a brilliant lawyer. These briefs that he has filed are detailed, and he has filed a ton of pretrial briefs that the state has had to respond to. He is very, very smart. He is very, very calculating, and he's a good lawyer. Because on November 12th, he stood up in this courtroom, knowing full well he was on television, and made comments about Al Sharpton and then Black Pastors and Colonel Sanders, all knowing full well it was being broadcast on television. That was not ineffective assistance of counsel by any stretch of the imagination. That was strategic. He got the response he wanted because he has filed a motion a day based on a continued drumbeat of, well, see, people are coming and people are responding, but they're responding to what he did. They're responding to what he strategically, knowingly, intelligently did so that there would be a response so that he could then complain of it. That is good lawyering right there. Goff has this response. Of all the things I've been called all around the world of the last month, I don't think brilliant was any of them. But let's, let's take this up, Your Honor. <coughs> the motion was legitimate. But he was far from finished. Now, this is not 1915. This is not 1923. There are not thousands of people outside with pitchforks in, in, in baseball bats. But I would respectfully submit to the court that this is the 21st century equivalent. This case has been infected by things that have nothing to do with the guilt or innocence of these defendants, largely without the, 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 as far as I can tell, it's not like the state is out there during this trial giving press conferences or something, but still, third parties are influenced in this case. They've been doing it from the gallery in this courtroom. They've been doing it outside. <clears throat> this is what a, a public lynching looks like in the 21st century, with all due respect. Once more, for good measure, it doesn't take much. And you've got witnesses and you've got jurors who are worried about their careers and their livelihoods when this case is over. And they'll be aware of what's going on. They certainly were aware of it before they got here. They talked about it during the voir dire process. Just because they haven't put a, a gallery up, uh, uh, what do you, they haven't put a podium up outside with, with a hangman's noose on it, doesn't mean that this isn't a trial despite the best efforts of this court. <clears throat> This isn't a trial that's been infected by mob violence of a woke left mob. Once again, Walmsley denied the motion for a mistrial. Next on Breakdown. We will reconvene Monday morning at 9 o'clock. I think the way we're moving right now, that will be for closings, uh, closing arguments or closing statements by counsel. And we'll proceed with the case at that time. So I want to thank you. I want to thank you for your attention here in the Superior Court of Glynn County. And we'll see you Monday morning at 9 o'clock. All right, thank you. Before we sign off, I have some big news. Longtime listeners of Breakdown will remember Season 4, Murder Below the Nat Line. That's the case of Devanya Inman. 
He's serving a sentence of life in prison without parole for killing a Taco Bell night manager in the South Georgia town of Adel, even though DNA evidence strongly, strongly suggests he was not the killer. Well, last week, a North Georgia judge threw out Inman's convictions and granted him a new trial. We'll have more to say about that in the future, but I couldn't wait to tell you now. And for those of you who have not listened to Season 4, please do so. As always, thank you so much for listening. We will continue to drop an episode every week of the trial. Next week could really be something. You can follow our daily coverage on our website, AJC.com. And if you really want to support local journalism, especially our journalism, please subscribe to the AJC newspaper or AJC.com. Be safe and take care. If you haven't been vaccinated, please, please do so. For all of us. And get that booster too. I got mine. Me too. In the meantime, have a happy Thanksgiving. And until next time, I'm Bill Rankin. And I'm Asia Simone Burns. You've been listening to Breakdown, hosted by Bill Rankin. Produced by Asia Simone Burns and Bill Rankin. Edited by Jennifer Brett and Jay Black. Music by Bo Emerson and Billy Guen. Sound design by Asia Simone Burns and Jay Black. Special thanks to Kevin Riley, Sean McIntosh, Leroy Chapman, Pete Corson, and Zach McGee. Please rate and review us on iTunes or your... Our journalists at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution are working around the clock to keep you updated on all the developments surrounding the Trump indictment. Now the AJC is putting all of our coverage in one place with our new Trump 19 newsletter. Every Wednesday, you'll have our latest coverage and analysis on this historic case in your inbox. So sign up for free today at AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. That's all one word. AJC.com slash indictment newsletter.